Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. How you doing? Hi. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> How's it going, eh? So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, you know, I never had the Minnesota accent growing up, you know, even though central Iowa, we had, we had a couple of the people, you know, come down and say, hey. Hey, what's going on? What's the matter? You couldn't make up Des Moines? <laughs> ah, I was in Waterloo, jackass. <laughs> There's more than one city in that state. Is this going to be the whole episode? Or Santos, this is going to be the whole season. This is going to be the whole season. Hey, I thought these guys were going to talk about medicine. There's just this one guy who keeps ribbing this other guy about Iowa, and then the other guy keeps getting steadily more and more pissed. I know. Every now and again, there's a trivia fact. So last time, when last we left, we were discussing the secret origins of residency and how all our prolonged work hours are due to one super gunner surgeon with a coke habit. I just, I'm starting to put like a little countdown. You know, I have like a little extra note on you know my my little notes app that is just the number of things that are present today in terms of technology because of like overly crazy coked up crazy people just <laughs> like the moon landing and crazy residency hours you know what the problem Not, is our our yeah. addicts today are underachievers that's that's what it is. That's you know, guys. If you're gonna just go out and snort lines, 
don't, you know, go do something productive with all that energy, please. Contribute to it. That's don't, what we're okay, saying. One, don't do drugs. But two, <laughs> if you do do drugs. <laughs> That's it. That's how we get demonetized right here. <laughs> Well, yeah, we had, there's all kinds. We had of, a good run on Spotify, didn't we, Santosh? Yeah, that's totally we did. <laughs> like, oh, it's you know, medicine and traveling and you know, pro drug. Wait, what? <laughs> Who's that laugh? No, no. I listen to do some of these great things in history. I don't care if you're man, woman, black, white, whatever. These guys had motors on them, right? Every single one of these human beings, they were surgeons, mathematicians, physicists, but I I'm seeing the kind of drive it takes to make these earth-shaking changes to our culture and technology and it's 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 a little bit scary but I'm very thankful for some of these giants uh cuz now we get to stand on their shoulders. So we already discussed the first house of Hogwarts which I think we said surgery or at least Halstead was probably Slytherin. Yeah, he was he was just basically, hey, you know, we got to get some shit done. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, the the ends justify the means type of attitude. So let's move on. And the reason you probably weren't as familiar with him is he's not the the authority figure held up as the hero of our profession. Because you and I right. both ended up going into internal medicine, although you subspecialized. I did. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we we started off a little while back talking about that oath, you know, the old Hippocratic oath where in ancient Greece, they cleanly separated medical doctors or physicians from surgeons who were originally barbers, butchers. Um, That distinction no longer exists, but we still kind of travel a little bit along these lines. It's hard to shake these really grounded habits. So yes, Internal medicine and pediatrics still had long work hours for a really long time, but you won't find much harder workers, I would say, in terms of just burning a bunch of time straight than if you go into surgery. So now, the one that you probably are going to be much more familiar with is internist William Osler, king of pranks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a prankster over here, but Osler, I know personally from Osler's nodes that you see if if you have subacute endocarditis and those things pop up, you know, and you, you have these lesions which tell you that there are small emboli being showered from a vegetation on the heart and they're being showered out as they travel through the arteries and they get to these end capillaries and the you, know, you might even say those embolic lesions from your heart go out on a voyager uh to cause captain janeway lesions <laughs> although that one was not named after Captain. no janeway it's a deep the, cut uh, that no one is going to appreciate except for the two of us that's yeah, okay yeah. <laughs> that's all right janeway's lesions osler nodes these are all stigmata of bacterial endocarditis and so uh william osler great internist um, you know, we had some of these stigmata named after him. So Osler was a short, wire man with a handlebar mustache. I want you to picture nice. it. 
then go look it up. <laughs> okay. There there was an era of mustachios mm. as medicine was coming up that I don't know if we'll ever see the we light can hope. ever again. But Osler had an uncontrollable urge to pull practical jokes that constantly got him into trouble. This is the man who created the medical residency, whereas Halstead created the surgical residency. So, jocks and nerds, folks. Jocks and nerds. But most of Osler's <laughs> jokes were fake case reports that he would submit to medical journals <laughs> under the pseudonym Egerton Yorick Davis. <laughs> I love it already. <laughs> and some of what he was doing here was to actually show the flaws in the publication system. Um, there were a few of these going around at the time. My very favorite, Josh, is Cello Scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys if you guys look up cello scrotum this was actually much later on this was all the way in 1974 by elaine murphy and what elaine dr elaine murphy had seen was there was a previous letter to a medical journal that talked about guitar nipple <laughs> saying that if you played it you know the guitar like up here like this that you'd get guitar nipple and he said oh this is absolute nonsense let's talk about cello scrotum submitted it to the british medical journal and it got accepted and these were some of the changes that hit after these articles were sent in they said oh we need to do peer review Let's do peer review. Before we talk about it, so I'm going to tell you one of the very first pranks that we know Osler pulled, although he pulled several, was there had recently been a case report on the phenomenon mm -hmm. of and vaginismus reported in the Philadelphia absolutely. Medical News. Yes. Now, that's a real condition, which basically involves a spasming yes, so vagina. Or spasming right, right. vaginal so muscles. The, the vagina is a muscular organ. Um, it can grasp, so to speak. It can also expand to let out a baby. And if for some reason or another, the woman is fearful, usually, it, it usually has an emotional component, then those muscles, just like any other muscles on your body, can suddenly spasm and tighten up. And the usual reference that is put along with vaginismus is that it makes sexual intercourse very, very difficult and very, very painful for the woman. Three weeks after this case report of vaginismus was reported, a Yorick Egerton Davis submitted the first published report oh, of what he called penis captivists. December 13th, 1884. No. <laughs> okay. Letters letters to the editor. Dear sir, All right. the reading of an admirably okay. written and instructive editorial on forms of vaginismus has reminded me of a case which bears out in an extraordinary way the statements contained by a gentleman who on arriving at my home I found in a state of great perturbation. Long story short, the guy uh, said he found a couple mid-coitus the man standing up, supporting the woman in his arms, evident that the penis mm -hmm. was tightly locked oh, in her nice. genital region, and any attempt to dislodge it was accompanied by much pain on the part of both. It was de cohesion in coitu. I applied water and ice ineffectually, and at last sent for chloroform, a few whiffs of which sent the woman to sleep, relaxed the spasm, and released 
and released the captive penis, which was swollen, livid, and in a state of semi-erection, which did not go down for several hours, and for days the organ was sore. The woman recovered rapidly and seemed none the worse. I am sorry I did not examine if the sphincter any was contracted, but did not think of it. In this case, there must have been spasm of the muscle at the orifice, as well as higher up, and this contraction, I think, kept the blood retained and the organ erect. He basically, and yours nice. truly, Egerton Davis, U.S. Army from Canada, whatever. He submitted a whole letter to the editor in a medical journal just because he's like, hee 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 what if... <laughs> And on the by and by, this is not how vaginismus works. <laughs> if if a man and a woman are having sex and there's vaginismus, the muscles do tighten up. It's quite painful for the woman, but the, the penis doesn't get trapped. <laughs> it usually gets expelled. Also, you shouldn't resolve it with chloroforming the woman, even if it no, was a real case. Oh God. The problem that I have with this, and probably Josh, you have the same idea, is that this was in a time where, and this is still a problem in today's medical society, especially in Western medicine, where we don't take women's problems as seriously as we should. So when the idea of vaginismus was published instead of taking it seriously and say hey this is the problem and what's going on it was thought of as a you know like a crazy problem or a or a nothing issue it's it involved two things we didn't talk about in the victorian right. era genitals and yeah. women <laughs> exactly so the actual report is stupid funny all right he used to submit a lot of these reports they weren't all vaginismus related but this, this pseudonym was something he kept going for a while. He was also famous for using alliteration to help his students remember what they needed to know. For example, there's four Fs involved in typhoid fever. Fingers, right. food, flies, oh, and that's filth. that's pretty nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to use that with, uh, you know, when I talk about it with my residents. Yeah, so, and this was like one of the main things that we know him from in residency is all these little alliterative uh, mnemonics. But before we get into what he did for, uh, we'll, we'll basically just be talking more about his pranks. He made a few adjustments to Halstead's method of residency, which I'll go into in a moment. But now that you've heard at least one of his stories, let's put him to our medical sports houses. We already have our Slytherin. Of the three remaining houses, where does Osler, our brilliant prankster, fit in? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, let's not forget, um, this is also a person who did a lot to help move along medical education and residency for uh, internists rather than surgeons. So he, he did do a lot of good over there. Uh, the pranksters, I, I don't know. Uh, Slytherin was pretty pranky, but it was kind of in a rough way. I don't know if Gryffindor or Hufflepuff was more prank pranky. I agree. I think he's a Ravenclaw. Really? They're the ones who are... That's where Hermione would have gone if she didn't want friends. Oh, God. <laughs> so you're, you're saying they're, they're kind of smart and they, they're pursuing knowledge, but they're also a little... Goofy? I'm saying that their methods of relating to the world may not be necessarily as intellectual as the ideas going through their heads. Okay, so Hufflepuffs gotcha, gotcha. are probably a little bit more known for being like Newt. Maybe they're not the greatest or the smartest, but boy, oh boy, are they there to support you no matter what. 
And Gryffindors, Gryffindors are fighters. You know, they'll take on challenges, but maybe they're not the smartest or the friendliest, but they're loyal. Ravenclaws are smart, and oh, Osler okay. was smart and just didn't know what to do with all that intelligence. Okay, all right, that's fair. I so get you. I get you. his greatest contribution to medicine, and he had many, but was the establishment of the medical oh. residency program, the idea that spread across the country. Prior to John Hopkins' medical residency programs and surgical residency programs, really, there were medical schools, oh. but no... After you graduated, you just hung up a shingle or went on to an apprenticeship. There was no formal training. Right. And we, we had gotten to the point, at least, where there was formal medical education. There were schools that you would go to to say, okay, I've, you know, I've earned my doctorate. But the, you're right. The training afterwards, the actual clinical training was shy. And I think you and I both feel strongly josh now that we've been through residency that it is super super important absolutely job training when when we're doing you know medical stuff we we can't just have the didactic training and so osler was responsible for establishing the full-time sleep in residency system not uh, i'll see the patient when i get around to it but their staff physicians lived in the administration building of the hospital so, whereas William Halstead was like, nobody okay. needs to sleep, ever. Let's just keep doing surgeries. Osler said, you're going to be yeah. spending time training with us that you need to have basically a place to live and be readily available and become a house officer. So he turns the administrative building into a doctor house. <laughs> oh, man. You were waiting for this all... I promise this episode was not written oh, around the opportunity to make that pun. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Maybe. A little. <laughs> so, as it was originally established, just like with Halstead, residency was open-ended, and long tenure was the rule. Doctors would spend about seven or eight years okay. as residents. Us in internal medicine, I spent three-year residency with maybe half of a victory lap while I was finishing up some projects. Uh, most internal and family practice residencies are about three years. These doctors in the creation of the residency program were spending seven or eight years as residents before they could be formally looked up to as doctors by their peers. Wow. Yeah, that's, that is a very long time. Now, we're still dealing with an era... Um, and you, you'll still see this long training periods occasionally where you don't have an undergraduate education. So you don't go for a bachelor's. You just go ahead and, you know, from high school, you go straight into medical school and then you do residency. So in that kind of a paradigm, it's maybe okay to do something like this because the amount of years spent in education in total is just about the same. During this time, residents would lead a restricted, almost monastic life. They, there were no restrictions on work hours. You could be called back to the hospital at any hour to see you know, if it was one of your patients. There wasn't such a thing as night coverage. It's not oh, the nocturnists watch over my patients. It's everybody had their own patients and you had to live, you know, within shouting distance of them to attend to them. So that's where we got house officers and the very sparse call rooms uh, in the administration building. Now, through this system, right. 
Now, if you were lucky, there were showers, yeah. too. Uh, and through this system, doctors in training made up the vast majority of the hospital's medical staff. So no longer was it, well, we'll recruit this researcher from here, this researcher from here, these from here. Nope. The, there were the major heads of the departments, medicine, surgery, uh, OB-GYN, things like that. And underneath them, all the working doctors in the hospital who had privileges were all considered residents. Now, some of them were eighth-year residents. Some of them were second-year residents. But if you were not a resident, you were not employed by the hospital. And that's where the majority of the medical staff came from. Now, the success of this system, as I'm sure you can imagine, depended in large part on its hierarchical structure. So you'd have interns, a few assistant residents, and a single chief resident who originally was occupying that position for years. Wow. Okay, so that's a little scary to think about that you just get stuck as the chief resident for a long, long time, just kind of at beck and call. How long in modern education does a chief resident hold their position? A year. Just one year. So, And it's not considered to be a time of training when you're learning about um, medicine, really. I, you, you do learn to lead rounds and, uh, and, and direct other residents below you. But the principal training that goes on as a chief is actually as an administrator. So you learn to actually make the calendar and work hours and how to evaluate everybody. It's, it's kind of a little bit more learning how to be a leader rather than learning how to be or continue to learn how to be a physician. Which is actually something I feel like our current medical education is a little lacking. in. It trains up wonderful physicians, but it really relies on your own initiative to create physician leaders. We don't get a lot of training in business or administrative sides of medicine anymore. And I feel like that's a real lack. Yeah, that's true. We'd have to get something separate usually in this day and age if you want to learn that stuff. Either something as formal as an MBA or a master's in hospital administration, something like that. Or you have to opt to take kind of like an apprenticeship role and work your way through an administrative ladder. There is not an automatic training. I remember, Josh, something as simple as even billing. Uh, I, I think I learned to bill kind of on the fly, which is a little scary, but I, I'm good at it now. I, I, I understand the principles and everything else, but it took me a little while to learn how to do that, and there really wasn't any formal way that I was taught. No, we, we make a lot of jokes about silly ICD codes and you know <laughs> injured by a falling rake on a Tuesday. Absolutely. But Ab abducted by alien is my favorite. <laughs> that's a good one. My, mine good is one. Uh, hit by unidentified object from space. Oh, that's a good one, too. I like that one. Uh, but, um, or, or recurrent tractor injury oh recurrent <laughs> recurrent not not a first it's sequela of tractor injury recurrent Se sequela of tractor injury is really good um but again these were things that they were creating this whole system for the ground up and if you've ever wondered about kind of this inverse pyramid of it all rolls downhill osler was one of the ones 
who did that because Halstead didn't care. As long as he had his coke in his surgeries, the man was happy. Osler wow. was an administrator, and he needed to set up a system that could perpetuate itself. So he created a system wherein, well, you've got residents who are here for eight years. You seem the most experienced. You're now the chief resident. You handle some of the administrative stuff, so I can go back to just doing my teaching individual residents and residents listen to me, sure. I teach them, then you teach the interns, then the interns teach the students, the students teach the patient, everything. It just all rolls downhill. In, a, in addition to that, Osler also instituted another first by starting clerkships. So not only were residents being trained and created under this, he would take his medical students to the bedside early in their training. By their third year, they were taking patient histories performing physical exams and doing lab tests, examining, you know, blood and excretions instead of sitting in a lecture hall taking notes. So Osler said learning from a hall or didactic lectures was less useful than practical bedside learning. And he even was known to repeatedly express the hope that his tombstone would say only he brought medical students into the wards. Oh, wow. And, and kind of quite proud of that. Yeah. So he said, listen, medical education is great, but if you're not seeing a patient, you're not really getting a medical education. So he began, and that's even today, we start seeing patients in our third year of medical school. That's true. Yes. Um, we we want to kind of get that experience started as quickly as possible so that we're not just kind of book learning, so that we're we are actually participating in the care of the patient. And there is a very you know, not dangerous, but it's a line that we have to tread, which is a trade-off between the safety and health of the patient, which really we should prioritize, and the education of the student. And we really do have to simultaneously prioritize both, but we know that that means that it's an imperfect compromise, because in order to learn from time to time, you make mistakes. Um, and that's really where that educator comes into play, because it means that that educator has to know when to step in, when to help, um, and say, okay, you made an error over there, maybe in diagnosis or how you chose your treatment. Um, I understand you made that mistake, but I'm here to help out and make sure that the patient is still safe while And for those of you who have never been in an academic hospital before with residents and medical students, that's exactly what happens, is you may be seen initially by an intern or a resident who, to be perfectly honest, doesn't know everything that they're doing, but they're going to be much more in-depth about asking you questions because they haven't learned certain aspects of targeting yet to elicit specific information. So if you're sitting there worried, well, what if this person then somehow, you know, asks me or gives me the wrong medication? Well, that's what the attending physician is there for to catch that. They look at the order and say, oh, you know what? That is not what we do. And they're in to step and catch as a safety net. So you're still very, very safe, even if you're being seen by a resident, because you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting someone who's going to spend much, much more time with you because they really want to learn and get a solid history. And it's a well-known fact. Medical students always take better histories than attendings, at least longer. They may not draw the same conclusions. We as attendings are better about interpreting that information. Students are better at gathering it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really cool uh 
progression that we make as residents, uh, well, first to students, then to residents, then to kind of full-fledged physicians, if we retain our prior habits and our knowledge, and, and that chain of education is carried out properly, then that idea of data gathering, you know, then data interpretation, and then management decision-making which then turns into, you know, not just short term, but actually thinking about what happens to the patient long term. That progression is really, really cool if it's laid out right in a row and if you're able to hit all those points throughout your training. Um, I think, Josh, you tell your trainees this, I tell my trainees this, and I try to act the same way, is that even as I progress, I'm quote unquote always an intern, meaning that. I should still retain all my good data gathering habits and I should never be shy of, okay, well, the medical student and the intern had asked these questions and they inquired about a particular aspect of a disease that I'm treating or, or a patient, they said, but you know, why don't I ask that question again? Why don't I ask it in a different way? And this may be people who are listening who are not doctors or nurses. This may frustrate you a little bit. <laughs> you're going to say, oh, I just told that guy over there. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, you know, if you elicit the question in a little bit of a different way, sometimes you gather new information. And the same thing is true for when you're putting the information together. I always tell my students when they're management. presenting to me, at our heart, we're storytellers, but you don't get to choose what the story is about. Right. So... Give me your elevator pitch. All right, you know, maybe somebody came in with a cough and a headache. But if that's all you have to tell me, they could be having anything from allergies to a stroke. So you need to go back in and tell me the story right. you think. Are you convinced that this headache is serious and life-threatening? Then that's how I want you to present it to me. Well, the headache came out of nowhere and I felt a loss of control in half of my body and I noted speech slurring and it was the worst headache I've ever had in my life and it's never happened before is going to be a very different story than I've had this headache for weeks and I have a history of migraines and I have eaten today and it's the middle of summer and it's been a hundred degrees for the last week. Those two could happen simultaneously, but if my students learn you know, which details to emphasize, it makes figuring out what's going on much, much faster. And that's part of the medical training that you only get on the job experience, learning which bits of information are relevant and what that information, what that relevant information is, changes with every single yeah. patient. And that's the wonderful part, though, of being a medical student if you don't know really what to emphasize, if your job is just to gather the information, then it may be a bit inefficient. It may take a while, but you're going to get every nugget in there. And that's really, really awesome. Um, that second stage where you have the resident, you know, talking to the attending, or maybe the attending comes in and takes the history directly. It's much more concise. It's much more efficient, but we kind of grab onto a lead much more quickly because we're actually parsing through the information a lot more quickly in our mind. We're processing it so that we can 
get closer and closer to a conclusion. So the subsequent questions that we're asking are very narrow, rather targeted, to try to kind of get rid of, you know, the 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 stuff that the disease isn't. So that's deductive reasoning. You're you're trying to deduct or take away the extraneous stuff or exclude the really scary things, the really serious things, and the really rare things. And then when you chip away like that and you learn how to do it better and better, then an interview, a patient interview, which for a student might take something like a half an hour or 45 minutes, might be a five-minute conversation with an experienced doctor who has a quicker idea of what's going on. But Josh, I got to say, if we have those habits like medical students, we find out a lot more about our patients. And from time to time, it really helps us help our patients. Well, that's how you get the mysteries, that one little nugget of information that you wouldn't think to ask. But yeah. you know, you have a patient who's been mystified or coming in with the concern multiple times that's never been solved until somebody gets that one little nugget. And it may not happen for months or years or until one particularly, you know, dedicated student or attending or resident comes along and thinks maybe if we asked about it from this angle. So that's, again, going back to your earlier statement, Santosh, sometimes we'll ask you the exact same question six different ways. That's the reason. We're looking for that little piece of information that maybe you didn't realize to give to somebody else yep. in the past. Um, I, I personally love it. It's my very, very favorite part of practicing medicine is rooting out the mysteries, uh, which is actually why I do ID, because that's a lot of what I do is, is get histories and you know talk and talk and talk and talk. It sounds like it's a lot and it's a pain in the butt, but um, I'm usually able to suss out what I need just by spending a little bit of time. I do recall actually, Dojas, from a lot of episodes of House, you know, when they came up with the answer uh, at the very end and someone House or something goes, ah, that's, uh, you didn't tell me about that earlier or whatever the hell it was. They've run 50 million tests. They've run, you know, blood tests and imaging and all this other kind of thing. But at the end of it, and that's why House always gets pissed off that everybody lies, is that there's a piece of history. There's a little nugget of information that if we had just asked that question before, or if the patient had just told the truth before, that you can say, ah, that is what's causing the problems that you're having right now. It's not some fancy test or anything. It's you know, really just a piece of history. But uh, Osler loved to say, he who studies medicine without books sails an uncharted sea, but he who studies medicine without patients does not go to sea at all. That's why he emphasized right. kind of really getting into the wards early on. Now, I want to close out at least with one more story of his pranks, and then we'll, we'll shift topics briefly. But he's also okay. pretty well known in the field of geriatrics or gerontology, for a somewhat controversial speech he gave when he was leaving Johns Hopkins to become the Regius Professor of Medicine at Oxford. And okay. the speech that he gave was called the Fixed Period, and it included a couple controversial words about old age, or controversial if you didn't know Osler. Yeah, okay. As we've said, he was a prankster, and he was in his mid-50s when he gave this speech, and it was based loosely on a sci-fi story that was popular in the early 1900s. 
uh, called the fixed okay. period. You should look it up. But basically, for folks who hadn't read this book, they thought he was actually envisioned about a college or a town or a world where men retired at 67. And after being given a year to settle their affairs and make sure that their uh, progeny will be well taken care of and close their they would be peacefully extinguished by chloroform. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is straight, you know, just death panels. Like, oh, there's too many old people. Here you go, Grandpa, just down. <laughs> imagine, imagine the man who created medical residency giving a speech to the medical school, and he's again, he's 55, and he's like, I think, you know, in care of geriatrics, we take care of everyone to make sure they reach wonderful health, live as long as possible until 67 and then we execute them with chloroform but you know they get a year first and and the reason he claimed that is and again this was all kind of like a jokey this was hit yorton Eggert davis coming back out he claimed that the effective moving vitalizing work of the world is done between the ages of 20 and 40 those are the people who are creating the world who are changing the world who are making it happen and it was downhill from then on uh, so, you know, ages 25 to 40, create the world, ages 40 to 60 is when you maintain the world that you have been handed, or you make sure that all your policies that you implemented in those younger years are well shored up for the next generation. And then the the headline press following this speech was Osler recommends chloroform at Steve. <laughs> and by the way, this was in an era... You know, we we talk about euthanasia in this day and age because there's a realization that death is not the worst thing ever, that there are pretty horrible fates out there for people who are in, you know, who are in real trouble. And it should be considered, yes, we should have a conversation about it. But in back here, you're talking about Victorian era, Josh. You treated a patient, you did everything in your power to keep that life alive. There was zero, you know, margin for this. So this wasn't just kind of like, ha ha, kind of goofy. This was it throwing the entire practice of medicine, just like ripping yeah. it apart. And uh, for the concept of mandatory euthanasia for humans yeah. after a fixed period became kind of a recurring theme in 20th century literature. So, you know, before you go after Democrats yeah. or Republicans for death panels, <laughs> just remember a guy who did medical residency thought this was a hilarious idea. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We have a lot of dark humor and gallows humor. And, and I think, uh, you know, you guys in internal medicine a little bit more so than in pediatrics. Uh, this kind of sense of humor that Dr. Osler made famous, along with residency, carries well into our era. Now we've got our Ravenclaw. We have our Slytherin. I'm going to bury the lead mm -hmm. for you a little bit. We're not going to talk so much about Welch, who was the and the one who recruited all of these folks. So First pathologist William Henry Welch is what I'm going to call our Hufflepuff. He loved he loved food, he loved okay. socializing, he entertained great friendships, which is how he got all these other docs in to help found Hogwarts, I mean residency, and then spent yeah. <laughs> the rest of his time kind of yeah. under the radar, didn't accomplish a ton medically, and, you know, authorities really only had to say about him that he existed and was known for his habits, and that kind of sounds like a Hufflepuff. Quickly, 
chronically overlooked. Okay, <laughs> Josh. Which means okay. we'll save That's for the next friend. episode the tale of our Gryffindor, Howard Kelly, the snake-collecting evangelical gynecologist. But but before we get into that, <laughs> and you know, I think we've got the yeah. nice Santosh. I'm going to tell you a little bit of the secret history of women and medical school. Because remember, we didn't talk about women or genitals in the Victorian age. You've heard the <laughs> saying, behind every good man is a woman. Mm-hmm. Medical school and residency was all thanks to the secret contributions of women. And let's, let's briefly talk about that. Uh-huh. During the 1890s, women were generally considered, on the whole, too frivolous and delicate to handle a full-strength medical education because you had human anatomy and disease. Uh, so people were understandably right. shocked when word spread in 1893 that the very first medical school class at John Hopkins had three women in it. The uh, the first one, the inaugural the inaugural class. class had three women in it. That's friggin' awesome! And yeah, this yeah. is this is huge because very forget about you know colleges or forget about medical schools. Very few colleges even allowed a woman to take a degree. The medical school was supposed to have opened mm-hmm. at the same time as the hospital in 1889, but there was no money for it. Income from the B and O railroad stock of Monopoly fame, which which the founder Johns Hopkins okay. had thought would cover the operating costs of the medical school had dried up the year. So you have the Hopkins trustees who had lined up the school's four premier professors, you know, our big four, and they showed up and found no school to teach in. Mm-hmm. And Harvard, McGill, and the University of Pennsylvania, the three medical schools in the United States at that time, kept trying to woo them away. Like these guys all showed up and they're like, hey, let's teach. And they're like, oh, we actually don't have the money to open a school. So Hopkins leaders listened when four of the original university's trustees' daughters offered a deal. Martha Carey Thomas, all right, Mary Elizabeth Garrett, Elizabeth King, and Mary Gwynn were all unmarried, wealthy, well-educated, and devoted to the new feminist movement of the early 1900s. They said... They would raise the $500,000 needed to open the school and pay for the building, but only if the school would open its doors to qualified women. And they were allowed to try because the men all said, of course, of course. And like, you'll fail, but hey, we'll still get some money. Oh, oh, so the guys who were accepting the deal thought that the girls would tank Yeah, they were allowed to try, assuming they'd fail, but, you know, whatever they did manage to raise could still be used to open the school eventually. The trustees argued against allowing women into medical school, and they ticked off four reasons. Reason number one. We can't have women in medical school because students might fall in love. Yeah. <laughs> right. This would produce this would produce disastrous, socially unequal marriages. Oh, heavens no. Number 2. Women would have trouble keeping up with the academic pace and hold up instruction for the men yeah. with their big strong brains. Exactly. And and what Josh are we supposed to do, you know, when they're on their special time? Are we just supposed to, like, hold up the entire class? Right? Yeah. I mean, goodness. <laughs> Not, and what if what if they've fallen in love and are having trouble keeping up with the academic pace? So there's two reasons oh. women oh, shouldn't be allowed in medical school. Reason number three, assuming the first two didn't get you, the stress of a medical education could prove so severe that women might fall ill and destroy the chance of marriages. 
Well, they had me right up until destroying their chance of good marriages, because I think we've already explained how difficult residency is even today. Forget about back in the 1800s. I know several of my colleagues who either got married in medical school or got married through residency. And, you know, the, the ones who are still together, they had to fight heroically to keep their marriage together through residency. It is a tough, tough Yeah, time. a lot of the divorce doctors I've met in my career, that divorce happened during residency. They simply could not balance the demands of medicine and relationships at the same time. Now, right. that's not to say that if you know listeners out there are in a similar position, you can't. There's lots of people who make it through just fine, but it is a lot of burden. So I'll give the trustees a little bit of that one. Uh, not that it couldn't happen to men too. I just like the way they phrased it so much that you could get ill and destroy your chance of a good marriage. Finally, and and this one, I have to say, I agree with given the time it would hold up today, but the trustees also said in 1900s or late 1800s, early 1900s, a woman's future was so radically different from a man's that there was simply no point in educating them together. Uh, yeah, and and that was this kind of horrible institutional structure that started right from day one, where you were handed your baby and say congratulations, it was a girl. So the same objections that they were trying to bring into it, it's it's kind of a horrible self fulfilling thing, right? So. You know, we haven't made a future for you because we've kind of, you know, guys are saying, you know, we're kind of blocked out the sun. So then you take a step back and you say, okay, well, at the educational level, why even try? You know, and that's that's a horrible thing. So would you like to know how this all turned out? Yeah. (laughs) Well, fire away, Josh. The money was in hand by Christmas Eve, 1892. With the women's fund adding a twist at the end, making new demands that even the staunchest opponents of a co-educational school could not reasonably refuse. So the women raised the money. Okay. They raised all 500000 and they And they said, we have your money. Okay. So you have to open your doors to women. Oh, but we have a few additional last minute requests. Sure. And and by they're just by the way, they're just clutching the cash. They're just like waving it like a fan. Yeah. <laughs> just, just like giant I, bills. I do declare Mary yeah. Elizabeth Mary Elizabeth Garrett, who uh-huh. I should mention was the daughter of the head of the B and O railroad. Okay. You know, the one who was supposed to, you know, the the investments in that railroad were supposed to pay for the medical school originally. The daughter of the head of B and O Railroad donated about 350000 of that 500000 to the effort by herself. Oh, okay. So that a, a good, solid chunk just came from right. one woman. Not not to belittle the okay, contributions of the other women, but they're like, oh, no, that's no. adorable. Maybe we'll get like 100000 She's like, bitch, here's three hundred fifty. You are You are more than yeah. halfway there <laughs> just for me. So here are the list of entrance requirements demanded by the women with cash in hand that would have to be met by any 
any Hopkins applicant, male or female, in order to enroll in the school. Gotcha. Okay, so now we have, you know, the requirements, which even to this day, all undergraduate students applying to med school kind of dread. Proof of a bachelor's degree. Oh, okay. Okay. So new step. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you need a certain level of standardization to even apply to medical school. You need proof of a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. A strong background in physics, chemistry, and biology. This was creation of the pre-med curriculum. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah. This And this is something that we all still have to do today. Proficiency, if not fluency, in French, German, and Latin. We don't really hold on to that one anymore. No, no. (laughs) I think, Josh, you and I both did medical Greek and Latin when we were either in undergrad or high school. Because I, I wanted to know the roots of all these words. I, I actually had the opportunity to do in high school. I'm actually really grateful for it because medical terminology makes a ton more sense. So you needed from going to simply, I'd like to be a doctor and apprenticing to somebody for a couple of years and being a doctor. They said, all right, you want to get into medical school? We need you to have a bachelor's degree, be fluent, or at least be able to speak four languages, one of them dead, and have a strong background Uh in all the sciences. Hopkins leaders were a little taken aback, and there were suggestions that even Welch, our Hufflepuff, after he hired on, admitted he thought were impossible goals. Even Osler said, Welch, it's lucky we got in his professors. We could never enter his students. What? (laughs) You know, I say this to the medical students today in this day and age. I, every single year, every single year that I see them go by and the the achievements that they have under their belt before they even apply to medical school, and I see now that it started all the way from the very beginning, I, I don't think I could have ever matched today's medical school students for what they do and how capable they are starting from day damn one. Well, you hope the following generation surpasses you, but not too quickly. I still need a paycheck. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'd, you know, see, see if I can still have some relevance in this thing. But uh, yeah, absolutely true. So if it was not for women, not only would we not have had a medical school where all these residency programs were created, but we wouldn't have even had a pre-med curriculum because the reports, uh, they did end up accepting all of those initial requirements, although they lightened up on the language proficiency later. And the medical report that came out later that year really set the standard and said, the existing medical schools in the country really need to build themselves up to the level of Johns Hopkins. And Johns Hopkins was at that level because of the big four founders who taught the program and these four unmentioned women who helped to create it so that there was even a program to And I'll say it was a stepping stone from that point when they set those requirements that today, in this day and age, when you look for students who meet the types of requirements that you're talking about, the census is tipping further and further and further so that women are in the majority. And we have these residency programs, Josh, that we talked about, these training programs. 
Previously, women were kind of allocated to doing pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology, um, this discipline of family medicine, which was originally called general practice. Um, but now, you know, women, A, are more and more capable of meeting the requirements for entering medical school, and they're rapidly gaining ground on every single medical subspecialty. The four women who founded the school were amazing. The three who were in that entering medical class, Mm -hmm. only one graduated. Oh, okay. Because two of them, as the trustees worried, two of them got married, and the stress proved too much. This proved too much for one, and she got married and dropped out. And the other one got married and stayed in a little bit longer, but ultimately left after having children. And only one woman graduated from that first class. But there were only three women in it. So those are still pretty good odds. But I just found it historically fascinating and humorous that the trustees came up with four arguments which sound ludicrous to us today. But they weren't technically wrong for the culture of the time. And it was awful. I'm almost certain, Josh, that A, these young ladies were fighting tooth and nail to go against these kind of institutionalized sexist practices. And they they probably had instructors in their face and students in their face telling them why they couldn't do it. And passing that, you know, finally getting to a point where you can perform well and, and have a hope you know, if you decide to get married, you go back in the day where the responsibilities at home were not at all evenly distributed, you know, which meant that the the husband in that pair, if they were also a physician or a budding physician, they would go to school and they would come back home and that would be it. And the wife in that pair would have to go to school, come home, clean up every goddamn thing, cook food. I, it was probably fairly wretched what they had to do. And so absolute props to the one woman who made it through. Um, I don't doubt for a second. Would you like to know the names? Didn't make it, we're facing overwhelming odds. Gertrude Stein. She, right, was said, okay. she was said to have a reasonable grasp of science, Absolutely. but an incorrigible yeah, yeah, yeah. habit of weaseling Hold out it. of course requirements. <laughs> so she failed obstetrics because she could do nothing with okay. her hands, was untidy and careless right. in her technique, and irritating in her attitude of intellectual superiority marked even in her youth. <laughs> and this is this is entirely fair. She was a heady person, right? And I've got to say, I, I'm a good doctor. I believe in what I do. I'm very, very solid. I did not do well in surgery. <laughs> I understood all the concepts. I could close pretty well. I could suture, but holy crap, did I have bad hands. So uh, one of the th- so you have Gertrude Stein who dropped out because she just had no technical ability, although she was very smart. Then you had Cornelia mm-hmm. Church who dropped out in her third year after deciding to become a Christian scientist. And, uh, oh, and okay. Mabel Glover became engaged to her anatomy professor, Franklin Payne Mall. So the only one who actually graduated was Florence Sabin. Um, 
who was also the very first woman appointed full professor in the School of Medicine in 1917. D- is that any relation to the guy who created the Sabin vacuum? Of of that original class, one married the anatomy professor, one the stress cracker, she became a Christian scientist and dropped out. One was Gertrude Stein and left because she simply had no technical ability, and the last was Florence Sabin. And uh, she did okay. She graduated and became a female professor. 1925. Well, I could actually go further than that. 1924, first woman to be elected president of the American Association of, uh, of Anatomists. 1925, first woman elected to membership of the National Academy of <laughs> Sciences. The National Academy of Sciences is not, you know, doctors or medical scientists or biological scientists that is the academy still around today that recognized the brightest and the greatest in every single scientific field so that's it for this week you know the history of the secret female history of medical school um as always we love to hear your comments and feedback would you sort the professors into different hogwarts houses uh what what medical spell do you wish we could have you know send us a tweet or an instagram or whatever but as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes Along with resources used researching this episode, our theme, mo- our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.